Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hello, I'm Jeff Stein. Welcome to Spy Talk. And I'm Gene Meserve. Great to have you with us. Well, we meet at a terribly fraught time in Afghanistan. The situation at the Kabul airport and around the country seems to be changing by the hour, Gene. With the Taliban now preventing people from getting to the airport, clashes looming with resistance fighters in the north. We're going to be leading the show with your interesting interview with Bill Murray, a retired top former CIA operations official who was chief of station in a number of foreign capitals, including Pakistan. Later in the show, I'll be talking with Jacob Zen, an expert on extremist militant movements in Africa at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies. Here's part of what he said. Well, I think it's true that the Biden administration has not articulated any plan for Africa at all, which is much different than, say, the Obama administration, which at least made big plans. They might not have executed them. But I just think that the uh, Biden administration has not prioritized the continent I think they got busy with Afghanistan and they're going to be very busy with Afghanistan in the coming months. They're also trying to reorient towards China. And I just don't think they have the time or wherewithal for Africa. They don't want to deal with international counterterrorism anymore, which is part of what the U.S. was involved with in Africa. So I wouldn't expect much coming from the Biden administration moving forward. That's Jacob Zen, an expert on African militant movements at Georgetown University. But first, there has been much finger-pointing and many recriminations over the cataclysmic collapse of the Afghan military and government and debate over whether or not U.S. intelligence predicted the crash and burn would be so quick. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, says the time frame was a surprise. The intelligence clearly indicated multiple scenarios were possible. One of those was an outright Taliban takeover following a rapid collapse of the Afghan security forces and the government. Another was a civil war, and a third was a negotiated settlement. However, the time frame of a rapid collapse, that was widely estimated and ranged from weeks to months and even years following our departure. There was nothing that I or anyone else saw that indicated a collapse of this army and this government in 11 days. The acrimonious debate over the quality of the intelligence available pre-withdrawal will continue, but we wanted to know about what the quality of intelligence will be going forward. We spoke to Bill Murray, who served in many capacities in his almost 40-year career with the CIA, including as station chief in Pakistan. We asked how hard it will be to figure out what is happening in Afghanistan with no U.S. embassy or U.S. military presence in the country. It's very difficult. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult. 
you know, Americans want to do the simple, easy thing, and that is fly a plane over somebody, photograph them, and say, we've done intelligence. Um, <laughs> the trouble with that is it's extremely limited intelligence. It's, you know, technical collection systems are excellent. They provide a lot of value and et cetera. But unless you've got human sources in the ground that tell you how installations are being used, what's being built inside installations, what decisions policymakers are making, what they intend to do, what's going on truly in training camps, et cetera, then you're flying blind. Is it likely that we left those kinds of human assets behind when we withdrew? No, it's more than unlikely. Uh, No, we will have a few. Yes, there will be a few, but probably not many. And how are they going to travel? How are they? How are we going to communicate with them? The nub of any intelligence operation is a case officer and an agent and communication between the two and then hiding the fact of that relationship and how we're going to do this. I don't know. So we no longer have an embassy in Afghanistan. What are the implications of that for intelligence gathering? In some ways, it's going to be liberating because the people inside the embassy were almost prisoners inside the embassy compound. It was very difficult to get out of there. There were so many restrictions, security restrictions and controls on them that they were already almost operating in, a, in, a, in an area that where they were using what we call denied area tactics, to, techniques to try to collect intelligence. So at least now we'll be able to operate on a wider basis and try to recruit Afghan sources based on people who travel and things like that. And we will be using a lot of technical means to collect intelligence. So I don't really see the loss of the embassy as a platform to be all that serious. I've done this job from other countries without an embassy and without needing, feeling the need for one. The real question will be, what will happen to Afghanistan? And I think that the thing that people have to understand is there's never been a unified Afghan government. There's never been a unified Afghanistan as a country, as we think of a country. It's always been a country of factions, of tribes, of warlords who lead particular areas. And there's no doubt in my mind that Afghanistan will revert to that model very quickly. Doesn't that provide some intelligence opportunities? Because Yes, that's what I was going to get to. Uh, The Panjshiris have already left Afghanistan and gone back to the Panjshir Valley. Ahmad Shah Massoud's son, who, who amazingly looks an awful lot like his father. I knew his father pretty well. And the young man, uh, his father spoke French. He didn't really speak very good English, but he spoke excellent French. But the young man speaks speaks English in addition to his other languages, and he's a very charismatic person. You know, the Panjshiris will group around him, and that'll you know that'll be an area where potentially we could have some kind of a base uh, to report on the rest of Afghanistan. The people up in the northwest are Uzbek, not Tajik, and not not Patan, they're not going to be comfortable with the Taliban. The Taliban basically are a Patan movement, and the Pathans are about 40% of the total population of Afghanistan. They are mainly located along the Pakistani border, and they receive support from the Pakistanis. 
which itself has a large Pathan population, but other parts of the Afghan population are not comfortable with being dominated by Pathans. The Hazara to the west of Kabul and in the middle of Afghanistan are Shia, and they will look to Iran for support. So there will be, I think there will be possibilities for intelligence collection, possibly even in Afghanistan itself or in parts of Afghanistan. Let's talk uh, about the role of Pakistan, if we could. Are they going to be useful allies to the U.S. when it comes to gathering intelligence or sharing intelligence? Pakistanis were, were very good allies during the war against the Soviets because there was a unity of effort between Pakistan, the United States, and Saudi Arabia, in particular, uh, unity of goals. But even during that time period, it was the Pakistanis had their own agenda. I don't think that Pakistan is going to be a reliable ally or a reliable place from which to conduct operations against Afghanistan in the future. Will they share with us? They've supported the Taliban in this rise to power. Well, they, 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 they did more than support it. They fostered it. They created it. They created it right under our noses. I was there during that time period. I know what they were doing. I knew what they were doing then. Uh, there's, there's been a lot written about the role of the Arabs during the Afghan struggle against the Soviets. The, the nasty little secret is that there were very few Arabs that came in to fight the Soviets. Most of the Arabs came in after the Soviets left. And the Pakistanis were happy to welcome them in because the Pakistanis saw them as part of a jihad and they saw them as people that they could use against the Indians in Kashmir, uh, which was then foremost on their minds. It's been said a thousand times, but no Pakistani commander is going to pay attention to it. They created their own monsters. They created these terror, these terrorist organizations, and then they're unable to control them. If you don't think Pakistan is going to be much use in terms of an intelligence partner, what about some of the other neighboring countries? Let's say Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. Will they be useful? Tajikistan, possibly, because the Tajiks are very sensitive to what happens to them from the Pathans. The, the, the Pathans and the Tajiks are not, not natural friends, okay? Uh, they speak different languages. They have different customs, etc. There might be a possibility that we could make some kind of headway with the Tajiks. On the other hand, uh, everybody right now is looking upon us as an, as an unreliable ally after what we've just done in Afghanistan. So the Tajiks may look to Russia. They, they may look to China. There are already indications that the Tajiks are looking to China. Uh, in a way that they never would have 20 years ago. I think it's going to be difficult for us to find a place where we're going to be trusted enough to be acceptable. We've, we've lost our leverage completely in the area. Is India going to be a useful partner potentially in gathering intelligence? Uh, yes, the Indians are going to be very concerned about what happens in Afghanistan because they're concerned about anybody that could potentially be used to stir up their own Muslim population in India. People forget that 
India is one of the largest Muslim countries on the planet. It is not the largest, but it is one of the largest. There's over 100 million Muslims in India. So, yeah, they're concerned. So will they be useful to the U.S. potentially when it comes to intelligence? Yeah, well, they, they can't be a base for us to operate against Afghanistan or anything or collect on Afghanistan. Uh, and I don't see the, the Kabul government giving them consulates or embassies or anything like that. I think that they're going to be just as much out of things as we are. I don't think that they would be unwilling to be cooperative and to be helpful, but I don't, I don't really see much potential. Not only that, but having served in both India and Pakistan, if you rely on Indian intelligence to inform you, basically what you're doing is buying a load of propaganda. You've got to be extremely careful about whatever they tell you, because so much of what they tell you is just simply designed to make Pakistan look bad. Whether it's true or not, it's, <laughs> you flip a coin. It's very difficult to figure out. Let's talk about technology and the opportunities and the challenges there. Drones, they're going to have to come in from a distance now. They'll be able to spend less time over Afghanistan. Do they become less useful or are they still an absolute critical tool? Useful for what? I mean, you can use, you can use a drone to go after a target. You can, you, when you have drones with Hellfire missiles, we can go after terrorist targets with them. We can use them for intelligence collection. They're getting better and better with longer range and longer, longer dwell times. But we would have to we would have to launch them from probably from American aircraft somewhere or American aircraft carriers in the Persian Gulf somewhere. So you're talking about a really long haul. And they would have to go across Iran or across Pakistan. Drones will be useful in a limited way. I don't see them as a major intelligence collection tool. They just don't have the, well, they're evolving quickly. We, we may get to the point where they have the flight hours and the ability to stay aloft for a long, long enough period of time to do true intelligence collection. But right now, they're a, they're a much more limited tool. We always have satellites. We have various kinds of electronic surveillance equipment which has been used, will be used, will be, will be useful. What's going to be missing is the human connection, human sources reporting what's actually going on on the ground, what decisions are being made by people on the ground. That part is going to be much more difficult to fulfill. Afghans are not going to be traveling widely around the world, so opportunities to connect with Afghans and recruit sources, send them back into Afghanistan are going to be extremely limited. One, the Afghan government, whatever it is, is not going to let them travel. B, other governments are not going to want to give them visas. So opportunities are going to be a lot more limited. And is the human intelligence absolutely critical to supplement the signals and visual intelligence that we're getting from elsewhere? Well, you know, that debate goes on in the United States forever. <laughs> I'm a human intelligence officer. I spent all of my career in human intelligence, basically, but always supplemented by technical means. To me, the two work hand in hand. You can't have one without the other, and it's a natural partnership. I mean, unless you know where to send a drone or where to target a collection, it's pretty much just searching in the dark. So without 
trying to use one exclusively without the other is extremely difficult. You wind up with something like North Korea, which is a, a big black hole on the map. Very, very difficult to get any reliable intelligence out of North Korea at all. Without some kind of human intelligence effort, it's going to be very difficult to get anything out of Afghanistan. The other part of that is we need to have case officers that are probably a little bit different from what we've been using the last few years. We need people who speak languages. We need people who understand cultures. We need people who understand the peculiarities of the Afghan approach to Islam, which is very, very different from the Gulf, for example. You wouldn't go to, you just can't compare Islam as it's practiced in Saudi Arabia or Egypt with what goes on in Afghanistan or what they believe. And people don't, Americans just don't seem to understand any of that. This, this culture is very, very unique into its, unto itself. I think I'm surprised to hear that we don't have case officers who are fluent in the culture and fluent in the language. Well, it's not, it's not as though spending a couple of years learning Dari is going to be useful anywhere except Afghanistan. But it's such a critical place, one would think they would have established that expertise. My good friend and former predecessor is COS in uh, Pakistan, Milt Bearden, used to say, Americans don't do hard. We don't do hard. Okay? We always try to find some easy way to do things uh, or pretend that we can do them without doing the hard part. And the hard part is not just learning a language, but learning about the cultures. And we don't do a very good job of that. We never have. We've talked about it for years. We're always talking about how we're going to improve language capability and et cetera, but we just don't do it. It doesn't happen. So I'm somewhat skeptical, particularly after the changes that were made by Director Brennan a few years ago in the agency. Um, I, I'm not even sure what's left there to build on. But we certainly need to get back into the business of understanding these cultures, understanding how they think, how they operate, and being able to speak to them. Can we presume that we're going to be inserting people covertly into Afghanistan to figure out what's going on there? No, I don't imagine that this administration is going to permit that at all. That would be too risky. You know, the, the, the problem with America is the minute that something happens, it gets into the gets into all the major media. I used to say Washington Post and New York Times, but now it's Facebook and, and all of these other things. Um, and, and the administration doesn't want to have to doesn't want to have to deal with it, doesn't want to have to explain it. So it's always easier to say, nah, we're not going to do that. No, I don't see any any insertion of people into the country and what we would call black operations. It's not going to happen. Uh, we might send in military teams to go after a particular terrorist or something, because that, you know, let's face it, there are already thousands of terrorists, international Arab terrorists living in Afghanistan, being shielded by, this, by the Taliban. And no matter what they say, those people are going to continue to plot against America and to do their thing. We never did get al-Zawahiri, who's now the head of al-Qaeda, and he's, he's still alive and he's still there. I've heard that he's ill, but he's still around. 
Uh, he's not much of a leader. He's not a bin Laden. He's not a charismatic man at all. But he's still around. And there's still thousands of people around the globe who swear allegiance to Al-Qaeda. They're all over West Africa, North Africa, et cetera. Uh, so the risk to the United States and our allies, how much has it increased with this departure from Afghanistan, do you think? I, I, don't, I don't view the Taliban itself as threatening to basically anybody. They're more interested in their own country. They're not, they're not an expansionist group the way some of these other groups are. But their tolerance for these international terrorists, for want of a better term, that's my term. And by that, I mean the Arabs and others who joined the universal jihad. The Taliban are going to tolerate them. No matter what they tell us, no matter what they promise the world, they will tolerate these people. For one thing, you have to understand the Taliban is not a centrally controlled, heavily hierarchical organization. It is a grouping of individual commanders leading small groups of people who identify with that commander, and that commander identifies with the general tenets of the Taliban belief. But it's, it's very much of a, an amorphous, constantly shifting organization, and it's filled with people whose main desire is money. So, you know, if some terrorist comes to them and says, look, you know, I'll pay you in order to have a small camp here or there, train my guys, they're going to do it. Even if the people in Kabul don't want it, it'll happen. I think that the level of threat has gone up. So we are where we are. If you were going to give the Biden administration a list of things they could and should do to improve intelligence in Afghanistan, what would they be? The Biden administration, the intelligence community needs to sit down and figure out what do they really need to know about or coming out of Afghanistan? Are we concerned about international narcotics trafficking? Is that a legitimate intelligence concern? If it is, then we've got to be worried about Afghanistan because the Taliban are drug dealers. That's been their primary source of money for the past 20 years, and that will continue. They are international drug dealers of the first order. Virtually all of the heroin that makes its way into Europe is coming out of Afghanistan. So we need to decide, is that a, that a legitimate target? Arms traffic. There are reserves of arms. I mean, after the Soviets left and during the time that the Afghan interim government was around, I discovered in my work with the Afghans that the Soviets had left stockpiles of weapons in warehouses to fuel the war, their war in Afghanistan for another 10 years. Those weapons are still there. Okay, it is an incredible stock house of weapons. And now they have U.S. weapons as well. Now they have U.S. weapons and they have all kinds of other little two little toys that we left behind, including uh, biometric devices that we use to issue documentation and identification. And they have all kinds of stuff that they shouldn't have. I don't know why it wasn't brought out of the country. And I'm not talking about, you know, big things like. MRAPs and Humvees and things. I'm talking about little sensitive electronic stuff. 
we left behind aircraft. I hope all of the sensitive aircraft and uh, helicopters, I hope all of the sensitive intelligence was taken out of those helicopters and aircraft, but I don't really know. But I can assure you, the Afghans aren't stupid. Not only that, they're great mechanics. They're good mechanics, they're good drivers, and they'll go through those aircraft and helicopters and look for anything that they can either use or sell to the Russians or the Chinese. And there are very, you know, the, the, the whole issue of terrorist training. Afghans, we, we talked about it already, but are we going to decide that we need to continue to monitor the movement and the training of international terrorists in Afghanistan? And if so, how are we going to do it? I mean, the requirements come first, and then you've got to figure out how you cover those requirements. What I've seen in the Biden administration, they haven't done a very good job of coordinating uh, a policy on any of this stuff. That was Bill Murray. He spent decades with the CIA serving in Beirut, Tehran, Syria, the Balkans, and, of course, Pakistan. Bill Murray is always a great interview, Gene, because he's uh, he doesn't hold back on his views of uh, the agency's advantages as well as the things it screws up on. But what really sticks with me from that interview is what he calls the human factor. That the CIA and other U.S. intelligence agencies have terrific technical capabilities to listen in on enemy conversations, communications, and plans. But unless you have a source on the inside, you can't really tell what's going to happen next. Yeah, and he was pretty pessimistic about the intelligence community being up to the task of figuring out what's going on in Afghanistan. He pointed out that there are now 17 different intelligence agencies all competing to recruit sources. He also said that the military now controls 80% of the intelligence budget and most of the technical assets, so their priorities are often addressed first. He also said he thought there was extremely weak leadership in the office of the Director of National Intelligence. So as you said, he doesn't hold back. No, he, he doesn't. That's why Bill is always great to talk to. Like after the exit from Vietnam so many years ago, the CIA scrambled to find Vietnamese communist diplomats around the world and recruit them. It had very limited success doing that. And as Bill suggested, the CIA, which is best positioned to do this, will attempt to recruit Taliban government officials abroad. But Again, the prospects for doing that are also very slim. It's going to be like penetrating North Korea to some extent. Thanks. And coming up, Jeff's conversation with Jacob Zen, an expert on Africa. Jacob Zinn is an adjunct professor on African armed movements and violent non-state actors in world politics at the Georgetown University Security Studies Program. He's also a fellow on African and Eurasian affairs for the Jamestown Foundation in Washington, D.C. He's also the author of countless articles and a 2020 book, Unmasking Boko Haram, Exploring Global Jihad in Nigeria. When I learned that militant movements across the Middle East and Africa were celebrating the victory of the Taliban and its al-Qaeda sidekick in Kabul, I asked him how that was all likely to play out in Africa and what the Biden administration might do about it. 
He has some surprising things to say. Jacob Zen, welcome to the Spy Talk podcast. In last week's episode, the legendary former FBI special agent and counterterrorism specialist Ali Soufan called the Taliban takeover of Kabul catastrophic, world-changing. Are you seeing ripples of that across militant groups in Africa? I think it is world changing because it does fit the narrative of the ragtag militants, notwithstanding the support they receive from external actors like Pakistan, defeating the world's superpower. And of course, it reverberates with what happened in the Soviet withdrawal in 1989 from Afghanistan. I don't think we've seen too much yet of that reverberation in Africa because it's only been a week or two. And it often takes groups in Africa some time to react. That being said, we've already seen Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb's Malian affiliate issue a congratulations to the Taliban. I expect another one will be coming from Al-Shabaab in Somalia. And within Al-Qaeda groups generally, they've been referencing what the Taliban did as an inspiration to Al-Shabaab and AQIM, Al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb. And uh, it's important to note, of course, that the Taliban is historically somehow allied with, loyal to, affiliated with al-Qaeda. But a lot of the groups that are ascendant in Africa are the ISIS provinces, like what we call Boko Haram or the, the group in Mozambique or the group in Congo. And they are not pleased with the Taliban like the rest of the ISIS provinces because of the way the Taliban deals with the international community and the way it's moderated in the treatment of the Shia, Hazaras, and whatnot. So you wouldn't expect any type of uh, positive sentiment from the ISIS groups in Africa. Mm-hmm. Let's put some uh, flesh on it. Who do you estimate is the top tamale of the militants in Africa? Is there one name, one person that pops out to you as someone we can visualize as a bin Laden of Africa, someone who poses a threat to the order in Africa, such as it is, and to us? Well, I don't think that you will find the bin Laden of Africa, but you might find something like the Taliban of Africa. Or when you look at the Taliban leaders who are currently talking to the United States and talking to CNN, I think you can find that. And if there was one leader I would point to, it is the leader of the Malian affiliate of Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb. This group is known as Group for Support of Islam and Muslims, and known by the acronym JNIM. But the leader is Iyad Aghali. And what's important about Iyad Aghali, in light of what the Taliban did, is that he's a former Malian diplomat. He had posts in Saudi Arabia, which is where he is believed to have acquired the Wahhabi theology that guides his group now. He's traveled to many countries in the world, Nigeria, France, uh, Pakistan. Um, and various other countries. And although he leads the Al-Qaeda group in Mali, he understands diplomacy. He understands strategy. He understands the long game. And I could very much see the group in Mali taking the Taliban approach and waiting until France, which puts a lot of pressure on them, is unable or unwilling to continue the fight. And then France will go home. And then they'll try to do in Mali what the Taliban just did in Afghanistan. And it's important to note that they're loyal to the Taliban. Thanks. And is he able to travel freely in the West? No, right now he's not able to travel freely at at all. He's under heavy security detail. 
And it's quite probable if France or Mali or the United States learned where he was, they would try to kill him. There are certainly plenty of spies in his ranks that France has contact to and some of these spy games going on. But no, his days as a, as a free traveler ended when in 2012, 2013, he officially aligned himself with Al-Qaeda and left his former post, which was sort of as a Tuareg mediator with the Malian government leading Tuareg rebels. Now, let's go back to you talked about spies penetrating his organization that the French in particular say no generally where he is or what he's up to. Is that just to clarify, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I suspect that because France, the United States, they have tons of spy equipment, a lot of things that we probably don't know about. But in, specifically, I'm referring to the case where the leader of Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb was killed because the United States and France spotted him leaving the Algerian border area and coming into Mali. And that France ended up doing a raid of his convoy to kill him. So these are the types of spy games going on uh, with the various countries in the region. And shortly after that, I believe it was France released to a media agency some internal video of Iyad Ghali with his top commanders receiving hostages in a hostage deal that was done. And they really couldn't have gotten that internal video unless they had someone on the inside actually filming Iyad Ghali. Sure. And, and France also killed some other top al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb leaders in Mali, which again indicates that they have some informants in that part of the world. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's some good news. Now, as you know, we reported at Spy Talk on Substack back in May that the counterinsurgency effort in, in Africa, across Africa, had dimmed during the Trump administration and the Biden administration hadn't come up with a new plan. We quoted Major General Marcus Hicks, the former commander of special forces in Africa. The Sahel is lost. He, he went on to say, ever since 2019, the security situation in the Sahel countries, Mali, Niger, Nigeria, Chad, Burkina Faso, Northern Cameroon has been in free fall and it's continuing to deteriorate. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's true that the Biden administration has not articulated any plan for Africa at all, which is much different than, say, the Obama administration, which at least made big plans. They might not have executed them. But I just think that the uh, Biden administration has not prioritized the continent. I think they got busy with Afghanistan and they're going to be very busy with Afghanistan in the coming months. They're also trying to reorient towards China. And I just don't think they have the time or wherewithal for Africa. They don't want to deal with international counterterrorism anymore, which is part of what the U.S. was involved with in Africa. So I wouldn't expect much coming from the Biden administration moving forward. That does not portend well. But General Hicks, who's retired now, the former head of special forces in Africa, also said that we, we never really had the Sahel. He said, we were never going to be successful. We had just enough skin in the game to screw it up. We needed to resource it for success. What do you think about that? That might be a pessimistic, but somewhat accurate portrayal. The Sahel was France's sphere of influence, and it still is. However, since the Biden administration and going into the Trump administration, 
the U.S. was sort of becoming a Sahelian power, uh, external power at least, in the sense that mm. the U.S. was establishing drone bases and uh, doing troop trainings in Niger and uh, getting involved with other countries like Chad. So, but, but you know what, this might have been reaching a limit. The U.S. obviously reached a limit when it tried to get into Central Asia and it lost all its bases there to Russian influence, maybe Chinese. It's obviously out of Afghanistan. And the U.S. tried to push into the Sahel and gain some influence there. Um, but as it turns out, the U.S. might just not have the personnel, the resources and the administrative interest to really establish a foothold in the Sahel. And not, not only that, maybe not good clients. I mean, the trap we were in in Afghanistan when we tried to nation build there, at least, was that uh, we were supporting a corrupt, malfeasant government that uh, didn't support its own troops, that didn't uh, relate to people out in the countryside, and the Taliban were easily able to gain a new foothold. Isn't that the same problem we have in Africa, that in fact our counterterrorism activities are in support of a number of corrupt, feckless dictatorships? Yes, it is. And I think one of the lessons learned from Afghanistan that the United States is taking hard right now is that it's very difficult to build an army, let alone a nation that is far away from your home country, different culture, uh, that has a corrupt government. And that's partly why a lot of the external support to Sahelian armies has not been particularly successful. And why the fact that the United States is perhaps going to engage these armies less might not end up being such a bad thing because these armies are going to have to learn to do it on their own or else be defeated by the jihadists instead of relying on the United States to do everything for them, which in Afghanistan proved unsustainable. Well, you got to really wonder about the prospect for success because the militaries in these corrupt dictatorships are also corrupt. And Al-Qaeda or ISIS comes along to some poor Nigerian and says, hey, I'll give you two bucks to uh, kill that guy you hate, the village leader, the government leader. Uh, I'll give you two bucks, uh, an AK-47 and a motorbike to join us. That's that's pretty tempting, isn't it? Yes. And I think that speaks to some pessimistic outcomes that we might see from jihadist insurgencies in Africa. Because these states function somewhat like Afghanistan, they tend to be corrupt. The elites and the leaders hoard the money. They don't care much about the poor citizens. Whereas the jihadists have very strong ambitions. The leaders like Iyada Ghali put their lives on the line. They're willing to sacrifice themselves for the country. They won't abandon ship. They have a very determined foot soldier crew that is perhaps a more motivated and has more long-term ambitions than the states. And if the states are going to act like this, at least the leadership, then you might end up seeing some jihadist victories in Africa in the mid to long term. And, and we can't really expect uh, the Biden administration to double down on counterinsurgency in Africa. I think uh, Joe Biden has gone out of his way to make a point in recent days that I never supported nation building. And there's a fair amount of evidence to, to back him up on that. I can see him saying, I'm not going to get into the same trap in Africa. So where does that leave us? Or let me ask it another way. Do, do these militant groups pose a threat to the West, to the United States in particular? 
generally speaking, the militant groups in Africa are not likely anytime soon to organize external attacks on Europe or the West. And they barely have ever. Al-Shabaab did for a period. But right now, they're not doing that. They're not speaking about doing that. And I think they realize that in the long run, if you do some external attack from Africa into the US or Europe, it's just going to cause problems because it, it will increase counterinsurgency pressure. And if you're playing the long game, you actually want America and Europe to forget about you so that the people in those continents end up asking their governments, what are you still doing in the Sahel? Why are you spending this money? Why are we losing a few soldiers every few months? Like, let's just leave and let them be on their own. And so I don't think that we will see those types of threats. Yeah, exactly. Those are very, very good points. And maybe the Biden uh, administration should be pushing back on the uh, special forces and counterinsurgency enthusiasts and say, you know what? The best thing for us is just to leave them alone. They're busy with their own issues in their own countries, trying to overthrow these corrupt dictatorships. Why should we throw in with them? Let's leave them alone. If you were in the White House today, of course, they're pretty busy with Afghanistan. But if you found five seconds to talk to them about what they should or should not be doing in Africa, what would you advise? For a few years now, or perhaps almost a decade, we've been establishing relationships with various African militaries like drone bases and training programs. And I think what we've done is is not a very large footprint on the continent, but I do think it helps the militaries to contain the jihadist groups. I don't think we're spending excessive loads of money on it. So I think we could basically keep what we've done thus far, and perhaps we just don't need to expand it. And expanding it could lead to it becoming bloated and negative effects like mm-hmm. that. So I would just say, let's just keep what we have now. Uh, we don't need any major changes. It's not worth having built what we have now just to disband it at, for no reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, in theory, we could have kept what we had in Afghanistan, which was not a huge footprint, and just done that somewhat indefinitely. But there was a lot of you know, political pressures and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I would just say, keep what we have now. Let's do it indefinitely. It's not too much money. We're not putting too many soldiers in danger. And, and see where it goes. Stay away from the nation building for sure. Uh, and don't get too embedded with the local militaries. Target the dangerous personalities that are really destabilizing personalities, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's for sure. We don't really have any significant nation building going on in a com- comparable way to Afghanistan. We have development projects and whatnot. But I think that it would go without saying at this point that nation building is completely off the table in Africa. But if any other country wants to do it, like in Mozambique, which is having tons of problems now, or Congo, then the United States can welcome their doing it. But right now, it's definitely something beyond the scope of the US. And maybe even African countries can do it. Some African countries have been stepping it up to go fight in Mozambique. And that's better. Why Mm -hmm. should the United States or, or France or Portugal have to do it. So that's one bright light. Are there any particular places that are bright lights? Uh, got some possibilities where we'll roll back uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda? Not really. I think ISIS and Al Qaeda are very firm where they are in Sub Saharan Africa. They're not being rolled back. And I think they're there for the long term. And there doesn't appear to be sufficient forces to really roll them back. But there have been some successes in Northern Africa like Tunisia, and you could say even Algeria, you really haven't seen ISIS 
or Al-Qaeda grow to the extent that it seemed they might after the Arab Spring. And part of that is that their governments got their acts together, might not be perfect, but they're uh, stable. In Tunisia, you have some pluralism and you have fairly efficient uh, counterterrorism forces in those countries. So those might be bright, bright spots, but we haven't seen it extend too much into the sub-Saharan part of the continent. Jacob Zen, thanks for spending time with us and giving such an articulate overview of uh, the situation in Africa in regards to the uh, momentum that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban have. Sure. It was a pleasure. Nice conversation. That was Jacob Zen at Georgetown University. I would love to talk to him or someone else in that sphere about Chinese influence in Africa. 50 African nations have now signed up for the Belt and Road Initiative. China's investing in a range of projects, including in strategic infrastructure like telecom. And the head of U.S. Africa Command is warning that they are looking to establish a naval base on Africa's western coast, on the Atlantic, in other words, so they could potentially station military assets like warships and submarines closer to the U.S. Yeah, their application of... uh... Soft power is really a lesson in diplomacy. Their tentacles of commercial involvement, penetration of African economies makes them really ripe for takeover. The African governments are pretty much in their thrall by the time China comes knocking on the door and asking for military bases. How that's eventually going to play out, we don't know. I mean, some places where we did that in the 1950s and 60s in Africa it didn't turn out so well. And so the Chinese may end up having some surprises on their end, resistance from local movements and so on. Some Chinese diplomats and technicians in Pakistan have been attacked by a militant movement. So there is resistance. We will see how it plays out, as you see. Thanks a lot for joining us for this episode of Spy Talk. I'm Jean Meserve. And I'm Jeff Stein. Hope to see you again next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.